0: architecture needs to kind of get off its high horse we need to kind of be architects without a capital a and kind of like get back to get back to or like our origins in a way that's my interpretation so to kind of be able to see through the everyday see through everyone's eyes is it is it kind of like immigrant families or is it people who have healthcare issues who are who actually need that help or people or just everyday people right and understand where they're coming from
1: hi my name is anita novak and i'm the author of this book welcome to season 12 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from across the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today, I am joined by Kelvin Kang, who is a project architect at Gensler, one of the world's leading architecture and design firms in the world. Uh, over more than a decade, he's worked on projects as varied as art galleries, community centers, shopping malls, residential high rises, sports arenas, luxury retail, and healthcare, and more. He is passionate about designing with empathy and designing for equity using the power of technology. This includes machine learning within palliative care and to address the needs of people with accessibility needs and neurodiversity. I am so excited to have this conversation. Welcome to the show, Kelvin.
0: Thanks so so much, Anita, for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Awesome. So I think I want to start with, you know, based on the work, what I've read about your work anyways, your signature design style is inspired by, could I say it, love and empathy? Um, Why well, do you suppose that's the case? Like, is there a backstory that would take you here?
0: Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it can be a long story, but like the short version is that... Because uh, like I was born and raised in Vancouver to immigrant parents, I'm first generation college educated, first generation professional. So I kind of arrived to McGill, the School of Architecture, that you know was a very, in a way, very prestigious school and a very selective school. Right, you go the top ten percent of engineering that can get in. I had to pull off a ninety six percent average in public school to have that opportunity. And I moved cities, so it was, like, a very big change. But I kind of found myself lost, right? And, like, there was um, a lot of my friends, like, they were – their parents were professionals or they were architects. And they already knew a lot of, like, Mies nice van der Rohe, Corbusier, all these kind of different architectural values and systems and kind of the language behind it. And I was just, like, fresh. And my first year, like, I always kind of felt that I didn't really know what I was doing and it didn't feel that, like, why do we – we had a lot of discourse about creating interesting forms or interesting cool geometries and I, even though i thought that was important it was like well i think we need to do more aren't we civic members aren't architects supposed to be able to provide for people so like i kind of traveled to rome to japan and i read a lot i studied and I happened upon a course uh alberto perez gomez he's the saeed ronkman professor at mcgill Order of canada um and i decided to do a a master's with him after my bachelor and professional master's I did a post-professional master's with him and his whole book is about built upon love he actually talks about it and he said some things that really kind of inspired me and I also other professors as well that really inspired me and that's when I started coming back and in second year where I'm like okay well when I started going to some of his lectures and just opening myself up to different influences that's when I saw okay wow like I can I can actually like use architecture as a vehicle for love and empathy and be able to be thoughtful of others. And it kind of also came from being an outsider, right? Like if I'm I'm LGBTQ, so growing up, I always felt that kind of sense of isolation. Being BIPOC, I also felt that, felt that size of, uh, sense of isolation. So how do we provide spaces that are truly loving and empathetic and warm? And once I had that epiphany, I found it, like, going to Dao Ando's building in the Chichu Beach in Japan, it's an art museum, the way he uses natural light, and I was like, I had this epiphany. And then I came back, and I started getting, like, top marks, I was getting, started winning competitions, starting getting awards almost every, I mean every semester, and, like, it kind of came naturally, in a way, and, and, um... I say it, I guess, humbly because I also was very inspired by very talented classmates and very talented professor who, who pushed me and also inspired me with their words, if, if that makes any sense.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that journey. And, you know, I love the, um, the fact that you were mentored by somebody who, you know, allowed love to take center stage and that, you know, that you that you are inspired by the possibility that designing and architecture can be a contribution to something much more than a building to standing there, right? And much more than just the aesthetic of it, but the actual sort of sense of belonging and inclusion that can be included and and what that inspires as a result. I love all of that. Okay, so um, I... I always invite my guests to sort of suggest a few questions. And in your case, you had said we could talk about empathy and design, empathy and tech, empathy and healthcare, empathy with equity. I've added the equity part. So I want to ask each of those. OK, so okay. I'll, I'll, we'll go one at a time. So. We've been hearing a lot about the importance of. AI and how we could jump off a cliff as a result of what may happen with technology, um, chat GPT, you know, we're, we're in the middle of the year 2023. And, uh, I think, um, I, I feel apprehensive. I'd love to hear what you think about empathy and technology, specifically how we can leverage AI to lead with empathy.
0: Yeah. So, um, The story behind that was, it was it was COVID. I mean, I've always been interested in technology and kind of having all those struggles throughout my life. I kind of um, had a lot of ideas of how architecture can help, but then I saw this kind of opportunity with tech, and I had this one specific epiphany during COVID because you know, like we were all hit so hard with it, and I was just struggling. Like, how do I how do I help people? Beyond the buildings, beyond the rooms, how do we really get to the people's? Like, there it sounds maybe a bit cheesy. How do we get to the hearts? And the first thing is like we need to listen to them. We need to get them to the table and give them a voice, and then listen. And that's like the first step, right? So how do we how do we get those stories? And uh, I was working on community centers, and we were part of this. Uh, there was an engagement team, so how publicly funded community center's work is that we have engagement as part of the requirement you have to go and you know get these surveys done and then go for in-person session they're pretty regulated and I just like volunteer myself can I be part of the engagement team besides being, being part of the architecture team and they said yes and as I learned about it I realized like okay for a community center the the kind of community feedback we get is a couple hundred people it's limited to one or two sessions and it's also like it takes a lot of time, right? So, to kind of process the comments and the amount of people required, it's like a team of four or five. You can only get a couple hundred, and then there's like kind of different kinds of answers, like long form answers, short form answers. So I was like, okay, why don't we just use that? That epiphany it was like during that kind of like dark moment. I'm like, oh, okay, actually, like it clicked in my head. We can use natural language processing to analyze survey results, and the whole idea of it was that by freeing manual time to process comments, you can actually use the team's time to go and like knock on doors, not like physically, but go and meet the people where they are. Find out events, like host more events, get more uh, people to come and actually say hello, and also leverage digital platforms to get to the people that can actually travel there. Maybe they have accessibility issues. And then another piece is that we can actually understand negative comments. Like I'm actually like, the fan of like this like expression like instead of getting furious we get curious
1: uh-huh.
0: so, <laughs> so 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 part of the commentary from engagement for community-centered design is like understanding what are the bad comments there are some that are like I really hate this or I really hate this rendering I really hate how this park is so dark I really hate there's no ramps because I'm in a wheelchair I really hate that there's not enough car spots for for people with accessibility issues and i really hate that it's not close enough to the entrance so i always have to walk or i'm a senior there's a lot of like seniors who have things they want to say so and the team tells me they get so tired like they don't want to read negative comments all day long they feel sick and tired after i'm like, I- i'm i'm a fan i want to know because i think at the core of negative comments it's like it's not really anger it's actually sadness feeling sad, feeling disrespected. And to me, that's a great sign. Okay, there's a strong conviction and opinion. Let's understand. And you have the machine learning, you can use that to kind of like process it and treat it almost like a science. So you can kind of like understand people and get to their hearts and understand what they want rather than kind of, you know, absorbing it all the time. And and the, the real goal is really trying to get to understand how to provide for people, right? And that's like the kind of the beginning of how all of this started for me. But ever since then, like I really see that tech can be used in very beautiful ways, right? I was at Microsoft judging these products where the teams came up with uh, tech to 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 support people with dysarthria. So they, they have speech um, challenges. They are trying maybe not the right word challenges, but uh, things they want to they're they're trying to communicate. So how can tech be leveraged to help? Uh, suggest an autocomplete things so other people can understand them quickly. So you can provide, they can also find work, employment issues and employment uh, opportunities. So I think it's about perspective and how tech is leveraged. Um, I remember growing up in public school in Vancouver, three of my classmates had severe forms of autism. So we were always trained, we were always kept in the same grades and same groups. So they get used to us and we get used to them because a couple of them, had specific needs that takes a lot of time for kids to adapt to so one of them had a whenever she got um overwhelmed she would start like screaming and she would come up and pull her hair so if you especially if you have long hair she would pull on and wouldn't let go so an average person wouldn't know how to deal with that but because we were very trained and we were very like understanding and taught to have empathy and understand where she's coming from then we don't react we just kind of let it happen and we all helped kind of calm her down or de-escalate and and those are the people that I want like I think giving voice to is very powerful and understanding them how to help them I think um, tech has a lot of opportunities for that.
1: Mm, I love that it sounds like you went to a great public school in Vancouver. Yeah we
0: were we were a hippie at like, least so like we grew salmon from from eggs, and we released it into the indigenous uh, creek. It was, it was a strange public school.
1: Wow, cool! I'm sure that was very helpful for you as you were flourishing as a professional. Hey there! I don't mean to interrupt a fabulous conversation. I just want to draw your attention to the fact that there are so many other great conversations on my YouTube channel. Over 120 episodes, with already 25,000. Views completely organic, thanks to you, my listeners, viewers, watchers. Please subscribe. The world needs more empathy, and you have a role to play. Um, okay, so now let's talk about empathy and design. Um, how can we expand beyond architectural roles using empathy?
0: So I guess part of it is um maybe it's kind of architecture needs to kind of get off its high horse. We need to kind of be architects without a capital A and kind of like get back to get back to or like our origins in a way. That's my interpretation. So to kind of be able to see through the everyday, see through everyone's eyes. Is it is it kind of like immigrant families or is it people who have healthcare issues who are who actually need that help or people or just everyday people, right? And like understand where they're coming from. Because I think with modern architecture, capital M since the 1900s. I'm also a part architectural historian studying with uh, history and theory. So in the 1900s, modernism was always about kind of strong forms and beautiful forms. And they're beautiful. Like, of course, if you go to some of my favorite buildings, it's like awe-inspiring, the the forms are so beautiful. But I feel like humanity is not really like that. We have dark spots. We have kind of like um, one of my really good friends, Valentina. She's also a PhD at uh, Architecture McGill. And well, I'll never forget, we visited some buildings together. She's a like, Kelvin, I feel like even the dirt under my fingernails is visible in this kind of building.
1: Mm, too lit. It's,
0: yeah, it's too perfect. Like, it's not human. Oh. It's meant to be experienced as almost like an artistic object, but you cannot live in it. It does not support civic life. And I think part of it is like kind of studying history, right? Our, the you know, One of the oldest... Uh, manuscripts we have access to is Vitruvius's um, books on architecture, the ten books of architecture. And he kind of writes, it's like 2000, 2000-ish years ago, and the three main qualities he writes about is fermitas, utilitas, and venustas, which translates to uh, the three ideals is strength, uh, utility, and beauty. Mm-hmm. Those are three kind of major aspirations that architecture should aspire to. But uh, the other interpretation that I learned from Alberto and other McGill professors is that venustas is typically translated as beauty. It's like a, and we understand that as visual beauty because we're a very ocular centric world. One of the first books we read in McGill was Eyes of the Skin. So how do you see through the world through your own skin rather than just mm-hmm. the eyes? But the point was that venustas. The argument is that. It's actually alluding to uh, Venus, the goddess of love. And the idea is that both with Venustas, Vitruvius didn't just mean look for a visual beauty. It's about creating buildings that can move the human heart mm. and create empathy. And to me, it's about being able to design and think for the other. So so to me, I think looking at history, you can actually see that architects had different roles, right? My other favorite um, period that I was kind of specialized in during that master's was... Um, Filarete's work. He's like the 15th century Renaissance architect. He did a whole treatise called the Trattato di Architectura. and he did a bronze door for St. Peter's. But he writes about it in his first book about the role of the architect. And he actually he had compares actually the architect is actually the mother, and the patron is the father. And he kind of compares creating a building as like having a pregnancy. Or the architect, the building is 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 you know in, inside your body, you let it grow as an idea, and you give birth to it. And if the building is sick, you're sad. and if the building like gets demolished or somehow you know gets destroyed, you'll also be sad, and you'll think about it. so so I think there's kind of a lot of different interpretation about how architects can be, and it kind of got lost in different periods of history. and he also he also writes the first architecture I remember in his book was that it was uh, I think it was Adam that left. The sanctuary and he covered his head to block himself from rain so the first act of architecture was an act of protection Hmm. so so i feel like there's a lot of kind of ways for architecture to kind of get back to different ways when it was a very strong civically powerful um intention to to be able to help people if that makes any sense
1: yeah and you think we've drifted from that because we're, we're like building up Ikea buildings, basically? Well, I think
0: being photogenic is a very strong kind of like, it's very desirable. You know, you can Instagram and you take beautiful photos, you can publish in magazines. But I think there is the story that's underneath the image that architects can get to.
1: Hmm. And so part of that must also be in the training of architects, right?
0: I think so. I mean, there's different camps, right? Some of the architects wishes we study more humanities. Some of the architects think we can go more and more about like parametric design. And it was interesting to entertain and learn from everyone. So the training piece, I think there's, to be fair, it's like there's too much to learn Mm. (laughs) because we have to learn from structure engineering all the way to like design and then also the digital programs to produce the work. So I think part of it is, being open to conversations and being, having that collaborative spirit, I think is, is the first step.
1: Beautiful, I love that. Makes me think of the school where I studied at McGill, uh, Faculty of Education up the hill in McTavish, the School of Brutalism. That's what it's yes. called, Architectural School of Br- I'd never even heard of that before and discovered that it's a quintessential brutalist school building with like little slats for windows. I mean there's no natural light <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like inspiring educators right like it's it's nuts it's nuts talk about getting it wrong
0: yeah uh, that was a very interesting period i studied with uh, Anne marie adams about that history four in mcgill and the whole brutalist um, building came up from a historical moment in the 60s where the world was was in cold war right so it was a reaction to Kind of like uh, nuclear threats. And, you know, there's different aspects. A true brutalist building always has hammer raised um, concrete to create that texture because it was something about defensiveness. Uh, the entrances are always kind of semi-hidden. The Yale School of Architecture is very similar. And only the people who hang out there, I remember, was was able to kind of get through this Lamprindian way of getting into the building. So I, I understand it from a kind of period piece. But to recreate that now, I would, I would not really understand why we're trying to do that. It's beyond trying to just create cool-looking sculptures that are not very livable.
1: Right. So what do you think the current mood is? Like, what is the the school of what is emerging uh, or is in the process of ascending?
0: Uh, I think I actually think people are starting to understand more and kind of get to the whole narrative piece about like um, like from from banks to hospitals to 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 everything. We're starting to talk more about kind of the visitor journey. Mm. So from the very entrance from mm-hmm. the, even the first contact all the way to to getting to the to the to the say the hospital to the doctor's room, right? Ganser publishes a lot of this kind of research. But some of that I found really really uh, beautiful too, right? Like there was one study about how do we treat for the patient care experience. Mm-hmm. So the 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 kind of um, interesting re- results of that study was that actually when someone's inside the visiting room, the quality of the visiting room finishes whatnot is very important because they actually spend a lot of time in the the waiting room sorry the waiting room and then actually getting into the examination room the patients care a lot about being able to see the doctor's screen so they feel like they're involved in their own health care mm-hmm. and with tech and whatnot I think people are going to demand more of that kind of like customization and be involved as part of the kind of health take care uh, healthcare care team mm-hmm. so I think I think it's starting to become more aware people become more involved into architecture somehow it's kind of aligning to what i was interested in a long time ago
1: mm-hmm. since you mentioned guest just right now i was going to ask a question about i went on to their website i was very curious and their mission is we are guided by our mission to create a better world through the power of design and believe the source of our strength is our people so i'm curious to know since i spent some time thinking about co-creating cultures of empathy how you feel the company um you know, creates a culture that leverages the strength of our people, of your people.
0: Yeah, um, I'm very flattered to, to work against her. There's a lot of um, very talented people and we're truly our brand is one firm firm. So we're connected uh, through teams, through everyday meetings, through our CEO, Andy and uh, Diane, who just came to visit us in Toronto. Um, and uh, I think they really make a lot of effort to to try and expand and let everyone connect so for example recently I kind of had this like um invite to um to Gensler one of my kind of a friends uh, Ken Ohashi he's the CEO of Brooks Brothers and I just talked to uh, Eric um, the managing director at at Gensler in the Toronto office and I just said hey like can we please invite him he's oh yeah perfect and then because it kind of just like went on its way and the New York team was super supportive of that. So everyone just came together and everyone pulled their like time together and made it all happen. And uh, like the Singapore office, managing director sent me an email and they were all very excited about all this kind of stuff. So I think that's the part where, we're strong because we're 7,000 people. We're $1.8 billion revenue. We're the world's largest design firm. And we have 52 offices across the world, from Tokyo all the way to Shanghai to the, to Europe. Uh, the Paris office um, managing director is also from Montreal. So he's a Montrealer. He also sent me an email. And uh, Philippe is really, really cool. And so 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 I think that's where our strength comes from.
1: So they're living their values okay, good to know good to know I love I love um I love when people walk the talk so um Kelvin, you're in the process of developing machine learning based surveys to capture the needs of healthcare professionals in clinical spaces. Can you share more about this It sounds so interesting
0: yeah so that's like a natural progression from designing community centers that kind of gave me this precedent in my mind that oh we can use it for. Uh, addressing health issues and this was a kind of a, a struggle for me too because my dad had cancer in high school and it was a very sudden thing in a very aggressive form of cancer so that actually almost affected me so much I couldn't get in like I almost didn't make it all the way to university because I was just like exhausted from the whole family we went caretaker mode pharmacy management sorting through all the pills Doing chemotherapy, researching, and listening to the doctor, and you know, I also have to be a translator because you know sometimes the medical jargon gets really intense, and helping read through the paperwork. It's kind of the the immigrant family experiences like that. So, so it came from that, and my dad, unfortunately, just as I graduated from McGill, like he passed away. It came back, the cancer, mm-hmm. and um, so for a long this time, I couldn't step in the hospital. I just spent way too much time in ICU, palliative care. All of that it was just like it was too much. It was I like, you know I'd put on zero suits. We had masks on all the time because the chemotherapy was so strong that mm-hmm. uh you know you can't step inside a room. You can't even bring flowers in because you bring certain bacterias. Mm-hmm. So 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 yeah, I couldn't step inside hospitals for the longest time, but this year there was um a challenge, the shift OA challenge that asked about the ontario association of architects had a design challenge asking about how do we use architecture in healthcare so that's where i kind of stepped in i got to conquer this fear because i'm like okay if i actually bring all my thinking all my skill sets i can help people and i like it's kind of that engagement where if you lean into your fears and try to conquer it that comes from a very strong place so of course i was in this like cafe over christmas just like my christmas holiday i was just designing these palliative care rooms and everything came together super quickly uh, and the idea is that I want to be able to learn from all the different um, healthcare professionals too. Like I'm in contact with some of the doctors uh, through our McGill network, some are from Harvard too, and they have so much to say, right? I was at Dr. Sanders' um, lecture, the palliative care chair at McGill right now. And one of the <clears throat> respondents, when I asked about the question, how do we improve architectural design? Everyone has so much to say. And I'm going to have a meeting with him soon. One of the risk. One of the participants said, like, yeah, like her her mother, when she was in palliative care, rather than sleeping on the bed, they actually want to, they spent their days actually spent um, on the Lazy Boy. Because mm-hmm. that was better for the back, they felt more comfortable. But the way the room was designed was that the phone jack was right beside the door, because I think it was a long time ago, there was still a wire attached to your phone. Mm-hmm. So every time they were on the Lazy Boy, but they're on the phone talking to a family member or whatever, and the doctors or nurses or whoever comes in, they would trip over the phone jack. Mm, so it's a simple fix where like you can just move the phone the data whatever we do that as architects um for for the room and that would have been a lot more thoughtful but it's such a small thing it could have improved the the day-to-day experience by so much and That's where I want to know, like all these kind of from small to big things, how do we improve a palliative care or hospital experience, really, because even if you're an outpatient for cancer treatment, chemotherapy, a lot of this stuff is hinged upon the patient experience that can be improved from very, very small things. I remember a lot of it just came from spending so much time with my dad, right? there was no music in a room because the room was not equipped for that, but we spent so much time there. And I had to bring my laptop and preload music on it and kind of play music for him. And I just remember seeing his face having such a sense of relief, listening to his favorite songs, The Beatles, um, You know, so that I think using tech to kind of access all that information is gonna be so helpful to guide the design process
1: right. User experience, as you said, you know, from the start to the finish, why why wouldn't we if we can, right? Yeah. Yes. Love it. Okay. Also, in terms of empathy for equity, as a board director with Archives, which is the largest independent archives for the LGBTQ history in the world, you're designing the first LGBTQ plus virtual gallery. Tell us about your vision for this initiative. It sounds so cool
0: yeah so that came from also spending a lot of time with the with the archives group and they're a wonderful community um of of people who've been really supporting queer rights lgbtq rights and uh i love them they they have so much to share so this kind of idea also came from this idea of you know designing for people with accessibility issues um And people who are in smaller towns that cannot make into the bigger cities. Because we know like a lot of queer people come to bigger cities because they can live with other people, find like-minded people, find anonymity as well. With uh, so many people, it's hard to be able to pick people out. So my idea is that can we provide a sense of safe space or brave space, whatever you want to call it, for people who can't reach the archives? Mm -hmm. We can't physically come because we're in Toronto, we're a downtown location. So if they want to read books, they want to... Uh, read historical, like we have a first edition of Oscar Wilde too, right? Like we can, you know, have certain parts that we can scan, digitize, whatever you want, make it into a digital experience. And then I can just, I've been already working on it, working on this kind of digital model that can be experienced through VR, through their phone, through their laptop, whatever they want. Um, Part of it, I'm also recreating a historic queer space from the eighties, which was rated before, And I've met the seniors who used to visit these kind of speakeasy community center spaces, which was fascinating, just the historical kind of uncovering of all that. And how do we actually recreate experiences that are meaningful for everyone and all the while providing access for the future, for future generations. And I think a lot of that came from, I spent time, this last year at the 519 which is the local community center for, for queer people and lgbtq plus families it's one of the largest ones in canada and uh, i've been mentoring a lot of the queer kids and i think like they can use someone that or something that feels like they have someone in their corner or or, or something that is you know more engaging than a website right they can go and visit spaces in a safe space on their own terms that's kind of where that thinking is
1: Love it, love it. Well, look, you know the way I see it. You've been working for a little over ten years as a professional now, and you've you're you know working at uh, the premier architect and design firm in the world, uh, winning all sorts of awards, really pushing the envelope in terms of how tech can be helpful in people's lives, using love and does and empathy through your whole design. I wish you nothing but the best. It's been a wonderful conversation. I'll ask one final question, which I ask all the guests. And that is if you can remember a time in your life when you were touched by empathy and what that meant for you, when you were on the receiving end of empathy and how that, what, how that mattered to you.
0: I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be greedy. I'm gonna make two small stories about that. <clears throat> the first one was, I think, working on the Western North York Community Center, which we won the Community Architectural Award of Excellence for. And that was, I think it was a long journey of design it was very really 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 tough I worked really hard but I think one part of that story is um, my partner who kind of watched over my shoulder designing that because this was during COVID like we were all were from home so he saw me do all these design options and we're vibing over between love empathy design and science so we kind of one time we kind of had this epiphany together where it's oh uh, uh, you're kind of working on this terracotta facade design so oh uh, we were kind of looking at the different two phases of light, how it's a wave, how it's a point, but also the ridges become inspired by terraform ridges in the ocean. So we, we access something that's truly universal and science-based and artistic, but it's also human. It's it's the earth. And that's how that kind of design thinking went along. And I remember presenting it the next morning after the like, at like three in the morning to the partners and they were like, oh, this is great. Let's just go ahead and keep exploring that. and it was um, it's uh, you know it's presented on the cover page of the of the kidney archetype magazine so it's a uh, i think from my partner the first story and the second story is um <clears throat> receiving empathy from i think the nurses that night my dad passed away i think even though they were professional caretakers and professionals in the healthcare industry i, I really feel for them their burnout and whatnot but that night when my dad passed away i remember they cried with us, mm. that for that moment, like I felt, even though it felt extremely lonely, I felt like they cared. And I think just being in that space where people cared for that one moment was very empathetic and I'll never forget
1: that. Yeah, the empathy super superheroes of the world, the nurses and the teachers and the social workers and the humanitarians, God bless them and I'm sorry for your loss. Um, Do you want to share anything about your dad before we say goodbye? Um,
0: My dad is, um, I think he's a man that gave up a lot so I can have a lot of opportunities. So I love him a lot and um, he did everything he could for his family to be in service of his community, which really inspires me and I hope to carry that energy forward. That's
1: beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, I think all of uh, his sacrifices have uh, borne a lot of fruit. sounds like you are doing him proud. Um, I wish you all the best, Calvin. It's been such a pleasure to have this conversation. Thanks so much, Anita. Thank you all for watching. We'll see you next week at Purposeful Empathy. Thank you so much for watching an episode of Purposeful Empathy. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to the channel and also consider picking up your copy of Purposeful Empathy. It's an invitation to dial up empathy in your life. The world needs more empathy. We need more empathy. What are you waiting for?